Genesis chapter 14. And, uh, well, the first part of this, we're going to read from verse 11. Let me try to summarize um, the first 10 verses or so of the, 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 the chapter. What has happened is that Abraham is in the, uh, the promised land, and he is there with his nephew Lot. They have so many flocks and herds that, that they, they need to separate, they need to, the land can't quite sustain them all together. And so Lot chooses badly and chooses to live among the people of the plains uh, near to Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and these areas that, that are full of people who, who really do not know the Lord and, and are living particularly wicked ways. And uh, we see in this chapter that that decision goes uh, really, really quite badly wrong for him. And what happens is that in the first 10 verses of the chapter, we find that there's a, a, a local uh, war and, and, and battle between uh, five kings and four kings, and Lot gets caught up in the middle of that, as we will see. So we pick up the, the reading in verse 11, knowing that this is God's Word. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, and a brother of Eshgol and Anir, Anir who were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the woman and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshgol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us His Word. Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning or one of the few Bibles, please do come with me to Genesis chapter 14 as we make our way through this chapter, Genesis chapter 14. Sometimes you get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
Sometimes you get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was painting one day at the house. Uh, it was a, a, a summer's day. It was a good day. I was painting at the house. And the next thing I hear coming down the lane, this awful racket. A bullock has broken out, right? And it's coming down the lane. And after the bullock comes my uncle charging down the lane. And he's roaring and shouting at me to come and help him. Here's me. Here we go. Wrong place, wrong time. And the bullock gets out onto the road, and it's, it's running along the road. And then it decides that it's a horse, and it leaps over this hedge. Unbelievable, right? This bullock just, boom, straight over the hedge. And my uncle looks at me, as if to say, right? <laughs> Away you go, because it jumped into an orchard. And that provides problems of itself, because the bullock's going to run through the orchard and knock all the apples off. So here I am, looking at my uncle, looking at this horse cow, that a bullock that has just jumped over this hedge, and he says, away you go. And I didn't know how to jump over the hedge, so what I decided to do, head first, run, jump over the hedge into the field, running around after this bullock. Wrong place, wrong time. <laughs> and I could have put everything into jeopardy. Thankfully, I got away okay. Didn't break any bones, didn't break my collarbone or my neck as I jumped over the hedge. And it's uh, the only occasion I've had to do that, but it was good fun, I'm sure, yeah, looking back on it. Wrong place, wrong time. Decisions had to be made. And so Abram, he doesn't find himself chasing a bullock, but he finds himself in a really difficult situation. So let's recap a little bit. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, if you have this as a title over uh, in your mind, Genesis chapter 12 is a little bit like Great Victoria Street in Belfast, the, the railway station through which everything must pass. It's our grand central, as it were, as Christians. Because in Genesis chapter 12, we have the beginning of the covenant with Abraham. And, and so the covenant has, has appeared in a form, and it's going to be built upon, and we're going to see that next week in Genesis 15. And then Genesis chapter 13, you'll see it there, Abraham and Lot separate. Everything seemed to be going okay, but then Abraham and Lot, they have this family row, too many possessions, too many cattle, and a bit of a fight breaks out and they decide to separate. And now we, we come into chapter 14, and, and we think after verse 18 of chapter 13 that it's all going to be peace. But we arrive into chapter 14, and what does Abraham find himself in? An international war. We read about verses 1 through 12. We see this war between four kings on one side and five kings on the other. Now, the four kings, they're getting rich off the five. So if you imagine the five are the little local kings, and the four kings, they're kind of the higher kings, they're better off, they're more powerful, and they've been taxing these five kings for 13 years. And now in the 14th year, it's Independence Day. You can almost hear Les Mis playing in the background, okay? And they say, we've had enough. We're not going to pay our taxes anymore. We're going to rebel. This is our time. Well, then the four kings decide that they'll gather together their armies and that they'll come after them. So we have the king of Shinan, we have king Alazar, we have king Arioch, and then we have king Tidal, or Tidal, who's the king of Going, which actually is the Hebrew word for the nations. Four really powerful kings are going to come after the rebellion of the five. And as they formed this powerful alliance, what did they decide to do? Well, they decide if we're on the war path, we might as well sweep up a few extra territories while we're at it. So they go north and they go south, and they sweep a lot of territory in, and effectively they surround 
the five kings. So these are the four most powerful, and surprise, surprise, they beat the five. And that's where we pick up our reading. In verse 11, you'll see the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their food, and then they went away. Now, why is this important? Why is it important for Abram? Why does he find himself in the midst of this diplomatic debacle, this international war? Well, look at chapter 13, verse 12. Chapter 13 and verse 12, it reads, Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. What do we see in that moment? It's Lot, and we thought a little bit about this last week, it's Lot putting himself right on the edge of temptation. He's getting as close to the the sin city as he could. But one chapter later, chapter 14, verse 12, look at the change. He's no longer just near Sodom, but they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. And because of Lot's bad decisions, because they have taken the land and now they've taken Lot, it brings Abram in. What will Abram do? Now, remember chapter 13? There's been a big bust up. They're not on good terms. Lot had made selfish decisions. He had taken the best land for himself. And now he finds that his decisions have consequences. He's lost everything. And he's being carted off as a slave, and he's likely to die. And so what does Lot need? He needs a savior. He needs a rescuer. He needs someone to come and save him from his enemies. But what will Abraham do? Well, that's what we're going to look at. Two points for us this morning. That God sends a savior and God sends a blessing. God sends a savior and God sends a blessing. So first point, God sends a savior. I wonder what your response has been in life to someone who makes a bad decision and who gets themselves into a bit of trouble. I think I shared this story in church, but if not, here we go again. Last summer, we were building pillars at our, at our house, Dad and myself, and we had got a couple of bags of sand, the big ton bags of sand, and we got a couple of pallets of blocks. And it was a Saturday evening, and I said to Dad, I said, Dad, do you know what? It'd be a really good idea if you went up to Granny's and got the forklift and come down the lane, and we'd kind of tidy this place up a little bit. It didn't need it, but I thought this would be a, a really good idea. And so Dad agreed, good job, we'll do that. So away he goes up the lane to get the forklift. But to let Dad in to where the, the sand and the blocks are, uh, what did I need to do? Well, I needed to move the tractor and the trailer. So that's all right. Get into the tractor, forget that there's a trailer on the back, go around the corner of the house, and manage to plow the trailer straight into the side of the house and take the corner of the plaster clean off the wall, right? So here I am in the tractor, starting to sweat because I know my dad's coming. And I managed to pull the tractor forward and reverse it back at the front of the house, kind of covering it a little bit. And he comes up, he comes up the lane in the forklift and he sees it, of course, straight away, hands in the air. (laughs) Hands in the air, right? A bad, bad idea a bad decision, had consequences, had to pay for somebody to replaster the side of the house for us, right? Bad decisions, bad consequences, someone had to come and fix my mess. And that's how we often feel in life, isn't it? It was my idea. It's a bad idea. And now I'm living with the consequences. Maybe it was a decision that you, that you took around your career. 
Maybe it was an investment that you made. Maybe it was someone that you, that you chose to marry. The buying of a house. Maybe it was the bad decision to send that email. To say the thing that you shouldn't have said. Maybe it was the decision to be friends with those people that got you into a sticky situation. Maybe it was going to that one place that one time. Or maybe you lost your temper and you said things and you did things that you shouldn't have. A bad idea, a bad decision, bad consequences, and you need someone to fix the situation. And this can all be true in our physical life, but then it points us to a greater problem, the more serious problem, a spiritual reality, because our very nature, our inward nature is to make bad decisions. It's the reflex of our heart because our hearts are sinful. So since birth we will make, uh, since our birth we will make bad decisions because our ancestors made the worst decision in the garden by eating the fruit. And Lot here in chapter 14 is a byproduct of the bad decision made by Adam and by Eve. And so in church this morning, what do we have to admit? We have to admit that our hearts are a mess. We've all made bad decisions and we're all living with consequences. And the ultimate bad, bad decision or, or, or consequence that we have is this problem of sin and we need saving. Because of our sin, the ultimate bad consequence is going to be eternal punishment, separation from God. Now, Lot has made bad decisions, selfish decisions, and he needs rescuing, but how would Abram respond? Well, we could imagine reading a line in this that would say something like, well, Lot, you've made your bed, you can lie on it. Or you play with fire, you get your hands burnt. Or what goes around comes around, serves you rightly, or I told you so. All responses that we are likely to give to someone who lands himself into a bit of a mess. But not Abram. Look at verse 14. What does he do? Well, he gathers 318 trained men. He doesn't even have to think. And he launches a nighttime rescue. Now, can you imagine it? Five kings... Four kings, sorry. Four of the most powerful kings. And what does he decide to do? He decides to go into this burr pit, verse 15. And he goes under the cover of darkness like an SAS crack hit squad. And he goes in to rescue. Look at verse 15. He chases them then. Confusion obviously descends in the midst of this, uh, of this raid. And as he gets Lot back, the conf confusion descends. And he chases these opposing forces around 100 kilometers north. And so this lasts for days. It's not just a in and out. This is, a, this is a prolonged, maybe a week, two weeks mission. And so it's an unlikely victory for an unlikely force, and it's an unlikely savior for Lot. The one who should really condemn him over to death and say, you've made your bed, lie in it, comes to rescue, comes to save. And so we read verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and he also brought back his kinsman, Lot. Lot had been restored, rescued, saved, snatched from darkness and death and brought back home. It's an amazing act of mercy by Abraham. Because in verse 13, whenever he hears this news, what, what could he have said? Well, he could have responded in the same way that Cain did in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. How did Cain respond when asked about Abel? 
He said, am I my brother's keeper? And he left his brother. But in verse 14, here we have instead that Abram led forth his trained men. Now, a little aside here for us, a little point of application is today, I wonder what our response is to people in our life who have gone astray, who have made bad decisions, who are now no longer walking with the Lord. What's our response to family members who have made bad decisions and are suffering as a result? Maybe it's a friend who you've tried to counsel and they've walked away from God. What's our response? Well, you've made your bed, you can lie on it. Maybe it's someone who before COVID used to sit in the pew here at church, the pew in front of you or the pew behind you or beside you in the pew and they're not here at the moment. And maybe you've tried to invite them back to church and you were met with a harsh response and you thought to yourself, well, that's the last time I'm going to try with them. What's our response here this morning? Well, I, I want this passage to to break off the hardness of our heart, as it were, to, to chisel it away. Why? Not because we just see Abram as being a great example, but because Abram was only a foreshadow of the ultimate person who would come, the one who would arrive to deal with his younger brothers, us rebellious people, the one who would come on a rescue mission, and the verse will appear for us in John chapter 3, verse 17. Why did Jesus come into the world? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. You play with fire, you get your hands burnt. It serves you rightly? No. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so the one who should condemn the King of kings, the most holy one, he comes to save. And Jesus would arrive to people dwelling under darkness and under the clouds of death. For who? For us selfish people. People who have made selfish decisions, who have taken our tent, as it were, and pitched it close to Sodom or in Sodom itself, in the world. Jesus came the unsuspecting Savior, born with animals, not on a, on a white horse, but on a donkey he comes. How would he overthrow Rome? Not with political strength or physical might, but he would lay down his life to rescue and to save. And he wouldn't defeat his enemy during the night. It wouldn't be a, a nighttime raid as such, but Jesus would defeat his enemy in the middle of the day, before everyone so they could see it. And he wouldn't just defeat the enemy by pushing him a hundred kilometers up the road, but he would deal the decisive blow that, that we needed from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And so what we're starting to see here in Genesis 14 is an Eden-like moment. It's a redoing of, of what has gone wrong. A Savior comes for Lot and rescues him. And that points us to the Savior that will come and who will rescue us. God sends a Savior. And very simply this morning, have you ever been able to call Him your Savior? We thought about it with the boys and girls. Sometimes it's really hard to ask for help, isn't it? 
Sometimes there's pride in us that, that really struggles with this, that, that we feel like we're okay, we, we, we pretend like we're okay, and actually what we need to do, we need to admit that we need help. Have you ever asked Jesus for his help? Do you see your need for him? God sends a Savior, and it's his Son, the Lord Jesus. And then God sends a blessing. This is our second and final point. God sends a blessing. There are little moments of grace, aren't there, as we go through life? Little moments where the Lord helps us or, or, or he, he reaffirms something in our life or He encourages us. That's, that's one of the best things I think about believers, being able to join with each other. One of the, the, the benefits of being here on a Sunday morning is chatting to each other or on a Sunday evening, having a cup of coffee and saying, how's the Lord working in your life? What's He been doing over the past week or two weeks or month? What's He been teaching you? How has He revealed Himself to you again? How has He been blessing you? Well, here in this passage, we come to this strange figure, verse 18, of Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And in this passage, what we're going to see is this moment of great blessing for Abraham. So verse 17, let's set the scene a little bit. Verse 17, the king of Sodom comes out. Now, if this was a stage drama, we would all boo and hiss as this king comes out dressed in black. Okay, we should know that he is evil. Chapter 13, verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So the king of Sodom comes out, boo, right? Everybody should boo him. It's not good. It's not a good moment for, for what's going to come next. And then this king comes into the valley of Shiva to meet with him. And so at this moment, the drama of verse 17 is this. Will Abram, will Abram accept the honors and the accolades of the Sodomites? Will he accept payment for recapturing their land, or will he not? And then verse 18, this mysterious figure comes, just at the precise moment, at the precise moment where, where Abram could sin, where Abram could reach out his hand and take from the Sodomites. Do you see the Adam moment being replayed? Chapter 3, he's presented with this, this figure of evil and wickedness. And just at the moment where he has to decide, someone comes, this king of Salem, verse 18, and he prevents and, and gives to him, instead of him having to choose the wickedness, he, he gives him a feast. Do you see this? Bread and wine. He begins to minister to him and bless him. So who is this king of Salem? Well, he's the ancient king of Jerusalem. Now, I didn't just make that up. That comes from uh, historic, uh, accurate scholars. This is the king of Jerusalem, king of Salem. And he stands in contrast to the king of Sodom. And what does his name mean? Well, his name Salem means the king of peace. And his, king, his other name, this name Melchizedek, what does it mean? It means king of righteousness. See who this is? He's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. And he's not just a king, but he's a priest. The first time this has ever appeared, the first time there's been a priest in all of Scripture, he's the king, he's the priest. And look at what he does. He verse verse 19 and verse 20, he speaks blessing. He's also, in a sense, a, a prophet. 
He's blessing because at this moment in the Genesis narrative, who's the only one that is blessed? It's God. God is the only one who has blessed anyone in this, in the account of the beginning so far. And then this priest comes. So who is this? Well, Psalm 110 and verse 4, if you want to read about it, we'll, we'll talk about Melchizedek. And so will Hebrews 7. All the way through Hebrews 7, you'll hear about him. And so in the text, we see what is it that he does? He blesses a rule only performed by God and now the priest. And through Melchizedek, we have this moment of sustaining grace. He's the priest king sent to minister to Abraham. And look at verse 20, to remind him that the victory has been given by the Lord. And so at this moment, whenever Abraham, Abraham is the supreme king, he has pushed the, the four most powerful men a hundred kilometers up the road. He is the king. Just like Adam was the king in the garden, sent a rule. And in this moment, he has to decide, is he going to become puffed up with pride, or is he going to take from the hand of wickedness? Look at what he does, verse 20. Instead, he bows in the presence of Melchizedek, this priestly king, and he gives a tenth of everything that he owns. Now, this is a wealthy man. And his automatic response is not, I'm now the king, you should honor me, but I am in the presence of someone far greater than I am. And so in verse 22 to 24, what does he do? He refuses to take from the hand of Sodom, from the hand of wickedness. So what's the significance of all of this? Well, we got to see Jesus in this this morning. We have to see him. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to be a big mirror for us, to, to a foreshadowing, a big arrow pointing all the way forward to Jesus. Now, who is Melchizedek? Some people say he might be a pre-incarnate version of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture doesn't tell us that, so we can't say it. We can't go beyond what Scripture says. But all that we can say is that he is a, he's one that's going to foreshadow Christ, the supreme prophet and the supreme priest and the supreme king. That's who Jesus follows his direct descendant line from, Melchizedek. He's not a, a, of, the, of the, the, the priestly line. He's not of the Levites. He's not of the house of Aaron, but he's after the order of Melchizedek, the ultimate king of peace and righteousness. And what does he come to do for us? Well, just like Abram in this moment, what is he in? He's in a moment of temptation and a moment of tiredness. He is battle-worn. He's, he's made this 200-kilometer round trip, and here he's in this valley, this, this place where he's exposed. And this priest king intervenes. There's so many allusions, it's hard to get them all in here during this one one look at this passage. But one's going to come, isn't it? One's going to come who, who intervenes for his bride when Adam failed. Adam failed to be the prophet and the priest and the king. And here we see Melchizedek in the moment where he's met with evil, being the ultimate prophet and priest and king. He doesn't let wickedness have its way. Instead, he comes and he ministers to Abram. And so we will have one who will come and who will minister to us, who will intervene for us. 
who will succeed where the first Adam failed, and who wouldn't just win a skirmish, but would defeat sin and death forever. Jesus is the priestly king who would supply his bride, the church, with what? With bread and with wine. The ultimate king of Jerusalem who would sustain us and encourage us and minister to us until he comes again and takes us to the final feast. So what we know about this passage is this, that this is the king of Salem, and he points forward to the final and to the greatest king. Verse 20, to the one who will deliver us out of the hands of our enemies forever. So this priestly king, Melchizedek, comes out of Jerusalem and blesses Abraham, and soon another king will come out of Jerusalem and will bless the whole world and secure the world and rescue us and bless us and provide for us through his body and through his blood. And so our response this morning should be, what a king. What a king. That he has given us the victory so we can turn our back on Sodom, as it were, on what the world has to offer. Because that's, that's exactly what happens here, isn't it? it, it for a little moment, Abram is maybe given a side-eye glance to all that the king of Sodom can offer. But then, in a moment, this priestly king arrives and blows the king of Sodom out of the water. And he satisfies and he ministers to, to Abram in, in only a way that he can. Verse 18, he brings out this bread and wine, this great feast for him. And what do we see? Abram is so satisfied, so blown away, that he gives him all that he can. He gives him this tenth to worship him. And so this morning, as we are met with the ultimate priestly king, what will our response be? Will we be so satisfied in Jesus to recognize his royal status that we would not just give him a tenth, but we would say, Jesus, here is my life. I will honor you and live for you. And then would we lift up our hands, see how it finishes? But Abram, verse 22, he raised up his hands. That's the sign of resolving or making a promise in this culture. He lifts up his hands to the Lord Most High, Creator. See the Eden imagery? The Creator of heaven and earth. And I've taken an oath that I will accept nothing from the king of Sodom. What about us this morning? The ESV translates this that he wouldn't take a thread or a sandal strap from the world. With all the world's treasure and wealth and luxury, what will we do? Do we decide this morning to take our tent and to move near Sodom or to dwell in Sodom? Or do we this morning see the king, see the priest, see the prophet? who comes and who ministers and who sustains us and who promises to satisfy us and deliver us, who will deliver us, verse 20, out of our enemy's hands forever, the one who comes to save us and to bless us this morning. Do we see him for who he is? And then will we lay down our lives? You see, this priestly king comes to save, to give us new life, to give us the blessing of eternal life. And then he gives us the bread and wine and baptism as the sign and the seal of this new covenant. Our question this morning is, will we love him? 
Do we see him? Do we see that we need help and that we need saving? And do we see his blessing for all those, for all those who will fall down at his feet? Please, this morning, if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't been able to call him Savior up until this moment, would you trust him this morning? Would you say, Jesus, I need your help. I've made a mess in my life. I need you to come and save me and to rescue me. I've made bad decisions, and there's a bad consequence for me. And then praise the Lord this morning that his arms are open. And he says, I'm here to save you. And I'm here to bless you. Will you come to me? Let's pray.